Welcome to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. What will Ontario's political landscape look like following the election? Tim Hortons violated the law by collecting location information from customers through its app. Interest rates are rising again as the Bank of Canada tries to keep a lid on inflation. Johnny Depp gets the last laugh against Amber Heard, but are there bigger ramifications at play? Congratulations to the Queen and the Salvation Army will celebrate National Donut Day in a special way. The GMH podcast starts now. This is the Good Morning Hamilton podcast on 900 CHML. It's time to paint Hamilton blue with 22. People know that there's a lot at stake in this election. I'm grateful that people are taking this election seriously. Ontarians are going to burst Doug Ford's bubble Thursday night. And we're looking forward to seeing that happen. There's some old problems that the three old line parties have really failed to solve. And it's reached a breaking point. This is Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Rick Samprin with you. It is election day here in Ontario. Will Doug Ford's PC party win a majority, as many expect? Will the NDP or Liberals become the official opposition? Are we going to see a major shocker or two today? So many questions. And joining us to analyze it is Colin DeMello, Queen's Park Bureau Chief for Global News. Colin, good morning. How are you? I'm well. Looking forward to a very long election night. Is today like Christmas morning for you? Well, I mean, it definitely is exciting for us because, I mean, you know, for any Queen's Park uh, political reporter, uh, you know, this is renewal, right? It's not just that, you know, we could be seeing an incumbent government return to office, but it's also, you know, what is that going to look like? What is the second mandate going to look like? You know, there could be some leadership uh, races as a result of this. I mean, this is a very consequential night. And there's going to be a lot of news for weeks and months to come as a result of what happens this evening. So, yes, pretty excited. When you reflect on the last several weeks, what are some of the biggest takeaways for you during this election campaign? Well, I think just really how sleepy this election campaign has been. That's really, uh, you know, the one major theme of this election campaign, right? Coming into it. I think a lot of people were expecting, certainly, you know, the journalists at Queen's Park were expecting a more competitive, more exciting, action-packed election campaign just because uh, there's been a lot of controversy over the last four years. It really has been a tumultuous time with Ford as premier. But um, we haven't really seen that. We haven't really seen the other parties able to invigorate the electorate like we have with uh, other election campaigns. If you take I think about 2018. And really, there were protests, there were rallies, there was a lot of excitement around it. This time around, it it seems to have been a little bit sleepier. And in the last couple of weeks, the NDP and the Liberals have been facing a lot of existential questions. Will they remain as, uh, you know, the leaders of those parties, uh, Andrea Horvath and Stephen Del Duca? It hasn't really been about, okay, what are you going to do in your first 100 days in office? And, you know, Doug Ford really has been skating through this entire campaign, uh, you know, taking it easy on some days. And that really has been reflective of what has been kind of a sleeper campaign. Our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML, Colin DeMello, Queen's Park Bureau Chief for Global News, as we dissect today's voting day here in Ontario. Many many expect the voter turnout to be low today. Did the advance polls offer any indication on what kind of turnout we might see today? Well, I would say that they certainly did. So let's take a look at what the advance polls were in 2022 and compare them to 2018. In 2022, we had 10 days of advanced voting, and we had one, a little over 1 million people cast a ballot. So that works out to about 100,000 people casting a ballot every single day. In 2018, 
There were roughly 700,000 people who cast a ballot over the course of five days, which works out to 140,000 people every single day over those five days. So you can see that, you know, the appetite for casting a ballot in 2018 early was certainly higher uh, than it was in 2022. Uh, A lot of people may still have been making up their minds in this election campaign. They may not have been as decided as as maybe in 2018. So that's why now they're going out there and um, they could be casting their ballots en masse today. Um, But, you know, there's a lot of other factors, Rick. It's a beautiful day outside today. People might be thinking about you know, less about politics, less about the news, less about what's going on in COVID-19. I might be thinking about, you know, what their weekend's going to look like. They might be thinking about, you know, uh, uh, planning for their summer holidays. Um, and, and the election campaign might not be the forefront. There also hasn't been that galvanizing factor. No real villain in this election campaign. No one looking to overturn a government uh, as they were in, 28, uh, in 2018. So voter turnout could definitely be low. But there are pluses and minuses to that and it cuts both ways for all of the parties certainly does colin always appreciate your time thanks for the breakdown and uh, have a lot of fun today enjoy it yeah my pleasure thank you you're listening to the good morning hamilton podcast from 900 chml the federal privacy commissioner says the tim horton's mobile ordering app violated the law by collecting vast amounts of location information from you Even when the app was not open, even when you were not using the app, it was tracking where you were. Commissioner Daniel Therians reports as Tim's collected granular location data for the purpose of targeted advertising and the promotion of its products, but the company never used the data for those purposes. Well, it has us thinking, and I'm certain our next guest was thinking about it over the last 24, 48 hours. Carmi Levy is our guest, technology analyst and journalist, and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Carmi, welcome back to the show. How's it going? Good to be back, Rick. Although, you know, I will slightly correct you. It's not just the last 24 or 48 hours. This goes back years because this story first broke a couple of years ago. And it's been gnawing at me ever since that every time I go into a Tim Hortons, if I've got that app on my phone, um, it is collecting more than they say that it's collecting. And Lord Mm. knows what they're using it for. So this is a long term there. And I know I'm not the only one that's sort of laid awake at night staring at the ceiling, wondering what's going on. (laughs) So how does something like this happen? How do they get away with it? Well, you know, they get away with it because there are no laws in place that would correct this kind of behavior. We do have a privacy law uh, in Canada. It's known as PIPEDA, P-I-P-E-D-A. Uh, the problem is, is that it's been around for over 20 years. You know, you know, take a look at the calendar. That technology, uh, apps, smartphones, uh, geolocation uh, technologies, location-aware devices, none of this was around when PIPEDA was first drafted. Uh, so so there's really no way that the law can apply to, to what's happening today, what Tim Horton is done. There's there really there's no punishment for them. Uh, the federal government did introduce an update to the law a couple of years ago, but it died on the docket before the last federal election, and they have not reintroduced it. So there's this great big gap, this legislative gap, where Canadians essentially have no protection against these kinds of behaviors, and companies like Tim Hortons can pretty much do what they want, have us download an app, uh, collect data in the background, not really be completely upfront about it, uh, sell it or sell it to third-party providers, because that's really where they make their money. Our data is worth something to them. Um, and then essentially walk away, you know, to scot-free afterward, knowing full well 
they can't be punished, they can't be fined, they can't be held accountable. So given that there's no law that is applicable to this violation of the law, um, there's no penalty, will there be something soon? Will this further or get the ball further rolling uh, to that uh, eventuality? I think a lot of that depends on Canadians. I think we, we as a country need to be outraged if we show our elected officials that this is unacceptable behavior, not just on Tim Horton's part, uh, but really on any, on any other company that rolls out an app and does the same thing, because let's not fool ourselves, they all do. Uh, I think if we make it a priority for our government, then they will reintroduce legislation that is relevant, that is current, that closes that gap. And it gives us some kind of protection so that when companies behave in this way, they will be held to account that uh, uh, the fact that there are consequences mean that it will govern their behavior and they'll they'll be a little bit more incentivized to behave properly and to manage our data effectively, really not try to get away with what Tim Hortons tried to get away with. We're chatting about the Tim Hortons mobile ordering app violating the law by collecting vast amounts of location information from customers even when that app was not in use. And we're in discussion with Carmi Levy, technology analyst and journalist. You're listening to Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. How can we tell if our app, whether it's the Tim app or any other app, is, is tracking us? Well, the first thing that we need to do is the moment that we download and install an app is read those permission asks very carefully. The, the, the app, by, by default, uh, whether it's an Android device or an iPhone or an iOS device, it needs to ask you for access to certain parts of your phone, like location services, contacts, um, things like that, your camera, your microphone. So read that and, and have a conversation with yourself. Are you comfortable with that kind of collection are you comfortable with that access if you're not then don't install it or you can go into the settings on some apps and you can actually turn off those accesses you lose a little bit of convenience because in some cases for example in the tim hortons apps case it's to show you where the nearest restaurant is so that you don't have to enter your address it's, it's a convenience thing but for some of us we, we're not willing to trade convenience for security for data integrity so that's the first thing is be aware when you download it don't just click through accept 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 actually take the time to slow things done and then also go into the settings of the apps that you already have installed uh, and make sure that you're kind of like it'll show you in the settings uh, what they are collecting and if you're not comfortable with it get rid of the app and also look at the apps that you're no longer using most of us have dozens and dozens of apps that we probably haven't touched in months uh, we call those phantom apps or ghost apps and what they do in many cases and certainly that applied in the case of the tim's app is that they would be active even when you weren't using them so the tim's app the problem here is that it was collecting location data even when we weren't using the app many of these apps are doing that they're leaking data in the background so why would you want that if you're not using it get rid of it completely completely that will cut down your exposure significantly. Got about a minute left. You mentioned that every time you go into a Tim Hortons, it kind of gnaws at you. Is this going to uh, affect their brand at all? Uh, I think so. Uh, I, you know, I think uh, you know it's all about trust. And I think when companies roll out apps, and you know, t- today's app is kind of like the website from an earlier era. Uh, it's it you know you have to trust as a consumer that the company is offering you some kind of utility. Uh, we know that there's a trade-off. We know that we do have to share some data, but they've got to be upfront about it. And in this case, Tim Hortons was not. They've apologized for it. They've committed to changing their behavior. But anyone who really cares about data and integrity and privacy and stewardship, and I think more Canadians need to, I think this is something that's going to stay on their mind in much the same way that with Facebook, we still remember Cambridge Analytica all these, all these years later.
later. And it kind of taints the brand. I think in this case, for those of us who care about data uh, and privacy, uh, this is going to be an issue. And I don't have the app on my phone anymore. I have no intention of ever downloading it again. Carmi Levy, always great to catch up with you. Thanks for joining us today. Appreciate it, Rick. Thank you. And it's Carmi Levy, technology analyst and journalist. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Bank of Canada once again increasing its benchmark interest rate by half a percentage point to 1.5%. And that's not all. Also with a warning. Yes. <laughs> warning. Interest rates will need to rise further to rein in inflation. Say it ain't so. Well, no, that's what they're saying. Welcome back to Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Joining us to talk about interest rates and inflation and everything under the sun in relation to the cost of living these days, which is sky high, is Marvin Ryder, professor with the DeGroote School of Business at McMaster University. Marvin, good morning. Welcome back to the show. Good morning. Glad to be here. It feels like these rate hikes are coming fast and furious. How would you describe the central bank's approach? Is it a measured one? Huh. Well, yes. Uh, so maybe let's do a couple of things if we don't mind, Rick. Uh, before COVID, if I can take you back to January, February of 2020, the central bank rate in Canada was 1.75%. And then in March of 2020, uh, because of the pandemic, they cut the rate from 1.75% all the way down to 0.25%. They did it in two steps, but boy, it was very dramatic. And they did this because they said, look, in a pandemic, all bets are off. We've got to do everything we can to stimulate the economy. Towards the end of 2021, we actually began to see the economy boom. In the last quarter of 2021, uh, the economy grew at an annualized rate of 6.6%. That's unheard of. Normally, the Canadian economy grows around 1.5% a year. To be growing at 6.6%, there was a real boom. So their first inclination was to raise interest rates then. But we also had this marvelous thing called the Omicron variant. And where was that going to go? And what was that going to do? And was that going to lead to a lockdown? So the challenge for the Bank of Canada, and it's still true even today, is to walk a fine line. You know, here we are in June of 2022, and the pandemic is not over. No one has declared it over. Now, we feel like it's over. We feel like it's in the rearview mirror. And, of course, we consumers, we've come out of hibernation, and we've started spending, and we've been spending in such a way business can't keep up. That has led to shortages. And, of course, when uh, demand exceeds supply, prices go up. That's what's led to inflation. What I'm trying to say is I think the Bank of Canada now realizes they should have started raising interest rates earlier, probably at the end of 2021. But because of the fear of the Omicron, they waited, and now they're playing catch-up. And so that's why you saw a half-point increase when we last looked at this, a half-point increase yesterday, and possibly another half a point, taking it to a full 2% uh, in the middle of July when they visit this one more time. They've made it very, very clear that they do not like inflation where it is. They do want to bring it down. They are prepared to do whatever they can to bring it back down. There's one other little wrinkle here, Rick, is that not only do we have COVID, but we have this war in uh, Ukraine. Nobody knows where that's going to go. Uh, it's certainly not ending. And conceivably, if Vladimir Putin gets upset with the progress, he may do something else. And I don't know what that is, but on a world stage, that could upset things more. So as the Bank of Canada is trying to slow inflation, 
they, they want to cool the economy, but they don't want to freeze the economy. Their nightmare scenario is suddenly one month inflation goes from six and a half percent to zero or one. And then, oh, my gosh, we've, we put too much on this and we put brakes too strongly. It takes two or three months to know what the impact of a decision is. So the hope is to reduce inflation in the second half of the year, probably by about September. But they're going to watch this very, very closely. I always find it fascinating on how they come up with, you know, how high or low to put the rate at. So at this point in time, they've decided on a half a point uh, spike. Why not yeah. a full percentage point? Because, you know, we're going that way anyways. It's going to be 2% sometime soon. Why not just make it 2%? Well, uh, I, the idea is it's a bit like, um, you know, you're doing some baking and you, you're not just quite sure how long the thing should be in the oven. So you put it in for 15 minutes and then you take it and you test it and go, oh, it's not quite done. Let's do another 15 minutes. Let's see what that does. And that's what they're doing here. They're taking an action. Then they're going to sit back and for the next six weeks, they're going to monitor it. So I think a real interesting question for the Bank of Canada is going to be what was May's uh, inflation number? Did it get better? Did it get worse? Worse meaning go higher. Um, And uh, they won't have quite enough time, I don't think, to get June's number when they look at this in July, but they're going to try to see how the economy is responding. If you do too much, too fast, there is this danger you cause a recession. Now, we don't think there's a recession around the corner. Canada's economy is growing. In fact, if anything, it's growing too strongly. So we'd like to see that calm down just a little bit. But we're just we're just you know poking and then watching, poking and watching. We're chatting about uh, rising interest rates, the inflation rates with Marvin Ryder, professor in the DeGroote School of Business at McMaster University. You're listening to Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Not only did the Bank of Canada raise its benchmark interest rates, it also warned that interest rates will need to rise further. So the question is, how high can they possibly go? Well, let me come at that a couple of ways, too, if I can. So uh, um, over the last, I think, maybe three years, We've heard this term called stress testing a mortgage. If you had a mortgage and you're renewing and you're renewing at what was a great interest rate, perhaps you were getting a mortgage in the, you know, 2% range, one and a half, 1.8% range. But even though that's what you were going to pay for your mortgage, they tested to see whether you could carry the mortgage at five and a quarter percent. And why did the banks do this? Well, the banks knew that these low interest rates weren't going to be permanent. And they wanted to make sure that if they loaned you the money, even though initially it was going to be at the low rate, you'd be able to still afford the mortgage when rates go back up. And so I'm, I'm not actually worried about most people who are in debt and that this increased cost of borrowing is going to hurt them. Yes, it does mean that if you've got a variable rate mortgage, a little bit more of your payment is going to go to interest, a little less is going to be reducing your debt. But if you were stress tested at five and a quarter percent, after yesterday's increase, we're going to be in the 3% range, you know, three, three and a half, something like that percent range for a mortgage, still well below the stress test level. Now, why don't we just go all the way up there again? Uh, the bank isn't sure. They're just signaling that they are not afraid of doing interest rate hikes. You, you might know there's a uh, conservative leadership candidate by the name of Per Polyev, who has talked about firing Tiff Macklem, who's the governor of the Bank of Canada. And of course, he has said they're not doing enough. And I think they're very sensitive to that kind of criticism. So they wanted to signal yesterday that they understood their mission is to rein in uh, inflation. 
through monetary policy, and they are prepared to do it. How high does it have to go? I, I don't think we're going to get much past two and a half, two and three quarters percent by the end of this year. Um, and even at that point, we're still talking about mortgages in the 4% range, 4 to 4.5% 4 range, still historically below the Canadian average cost of borrowing over the last 100 years. Well, we'll end it on that uh, positive note. Uh, Marvin, always appreciate catching up with you. Thanks for joining us today. Glad to be with you. Marvin Ryder, professor in the DeGroote School of Business at McMaster University as we chat about inflation and interest rates. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. As against Amber Heard, we the jury award punitive damages in the amount of $5 million. Johnny Depp winning his defamation case against ex-wife Amber Heard as the jury awarded him a total of $15 million in damages. Amber Heard did get $2 million in compensatory damages after the jury found that she was defamed by one of Depp's lawyers. Um, all of this coming as Depp sued Heard for 50 mil after she wrote an op-ed piece for the Washington Post um, four years ago now in which she called herself a public figure representing domestic abuse. Heard countersued Depp for $100 million, and as you just heard, Depp winning this defamation lawsuit. Here to chat about it is Emily D. Baker, lawyer and former Los Angeles Deputy District Attorney and Legal Analyst, also the host of the Emily Show podcast. Get it in your favorite podcast catcher. Emily, welcome back to the show. How are you? Thank you so much. Good morning. I am still reeling from this jury awarding Johnny Depp not just the $15 million, which was partly capped by the judge, which we can talk about, but finding defamation on all three of his causes of actions, I am still just kind of in shock. I was very surprised at that result. What, what were you anticipating was going to happen? I thought that if Johnny Depp won any of these claims, and that was a big if, that they would just get the headline with regard to the biggest allegations of violence. I did not think they would essentially find the entire op-ed to be defamatory, which is what they did in this verdict. And then they came in with $5 million in punitive damages, which are damages awarded to punish someone to say what you did is unacceptable and to try to deter them from doing it again, different than the compensatory damages that compensate you for what you've lost. And that $5 million number is a big message to Amber Heard that this jury simply did not believe her. Depp said in a statement after the jury um, decision, quote, the jury gave me my life back. Heard, for her part, does plan to appeal. How soon could that happen? I think we'll see a notice of appeal filed, but there will be some other motions that will happen before that that are pretty standard in court. We won't see the entry of the judgment until June 24th, and then there should be about a 90-day window before that appeal is finalized. So though the jury has come back, I don't think this litigation is done based on her signaling that she's going to appeal, and the parties could settle the judgment and decide to just be done. But I don't know if that's going to happen after six years of litigation between these two sides. Our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML, Emily D. Baker, an attorney and legal analyst, former L.A. Deputy District Attorney, and the host of the Emily Show podcast. Um, Heard says the ruling is a setback for other women. She says she's heartbroken. What does this ruling do for future domestic abuse cases? I don't doubt that she is heartbroken, but... This is a defamation case. I don't think it sets back 
domestic violence cases. I don't. The jury did not believe her the same way a jury did not believe Jesse Smollett. This is more of an outlier than a standard. If anything, it's brought awareness that domestic violence does not have a, a typical it can happen across any type of relationship, any gender, any socioeconomic status, and the things that can happen in a celebrity relationship are the same things that can happen to everyone else. I think it brings awareness, if anything. Given the jury's decision on all three of those defamation issues, did, did Depp's lawyers just do a better job than Heard's lawyers? I don't think so. I think the person that had this case to win or lose was Amber Heard in her own testimony. Amber Heard's testimony was contradicted by um, numerous witnesses. And though she said a mountain of evidence was on her side, there were a lot of witnesses not presented in the UK case who were contradicting what she said. Lots of people that never saw injury on her. And that, I think, was ultimately what did it, though I do think the performance of Depp's attorneys in court was excellent, and there were definitely some moments in court that were not ideal that have been memed across the Internet for Amber Heard's lawyers. But on the legal, I think the lawyers on their written motions uh, both really held their own. But when it came to in-court performance, Depp's attorneys absolutely shined. It was certainly a fascinating trial to watch. Emily, appreciate your time and your analysis on this. Thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for having me back. Talk to you soon. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. In jolly old England today. Inevitably, a long life can pass by many milestones. My own is no exception. Four days of celebrations honoring Queen Elizabeth. Seventy years on the throne are underway. The Queen has joined her family on the balcony of Buckingham Palace as 70 planes fly past, including the Lancaster bomber, one of only two airworthy Lancasters, the other being here in Hamilton, as we all know. The 96-year-old Elizabeth is Britain's longest reigning monarch and the first to serve for seven decades, the thought of which is absolutely mind-boggling. Patricia Treble is our next guest on Good Morning Hamilton. Patricia is the founder of Right Royalty and royal contributor to McLean's. Patricia, good morning. How are you? Oh, she has exited the interview space. Maybe is rather taken aback by the celebrations at Buckingham Palace. We'll try to get her back on the line ASAP. Uh, the Queen's reign, as I mentioned, the longest in British history. She assumed the throne after the death of her father on February 6th, 1952. Yes, back on February 6th, Queen Elizabeth became officially the first British monarch to celebrate a platinum jubilee, which marks 70 years on the throne. And some of the celebrations, some of the videos and uh, images that we're seeing at Buckingham Palace are absolutely Unbelievable. We have uh, Patricia back on the line. Patricia, good morning. How are you? <laughs> Technology is wonderful, isn't it? <laughs> I'm, I'm fine. This was, what a morning. Wow. What a morning. A glorious celebration. What a turnout in and around Buckingham Palace. It, 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 there's a mass of humanity. And no surprise, because this is really a once-in-a-lifetime event. This is. I mean, look, she is the third, she's the third longest reigning monarch ever. Like, Ever. Um, and in two years, she'll be number one. Um, but the most extraordinary thing, and I think this is what everyone thought, she was there. Um, because let's face it, I mean, her health has not been good lately. She's increasingly fragile. 
and they only confirm her presence at the very last moment. And so there was a, a bit of moment of trepidation because as the Tribune of Color, which is a huge military parade for her, this is her official birthday, when it was happening, the Union Jack was still flying from Buckingham Palace. And when the Queen is in residence, it's her personal standard that flies. So everyone was getting nervous that she might not show up at Buckingham Palace. And then all of a sudden... Union Jack goes down, her personal standard comes up, and everyone breathes a sigh of relief. She is there, and she was on the balcony twice. You mentioned in two years' time she'll be the the longest reigning monarch ever on the planet. Is that something she's striving for? Does that matter to her? I don't think it does. I mean, I think this is... She, look, she's, she's, she's smashed every record. I, I really don't think it does. I, for her, and this is what, it comes, what comes down to it, it's duty. Um, you know, she swore an oath. At their coronation, she swore to the public when she was turned 21 um, that her whole life, whether it be long or short, would be dedicated to your service. And this is what she's done. And this is what I think, whether you believe in the monarchy or not, you admire her because she has done that. She has had one job for 70 years. I mean, think about it. <laughs> Most of us retire at 65. Um, she's had a job longer then, you know, most of us would even be working. Um, and I think that is what is so incredible. And I think that's what people are honoring, because they realize this is truly a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to see her and to honor her. Patricia Treble is our guest, founder of Right Royalty, a royal contributor to Maclean's, and we're chatting about the Queen's 70th anniversary on the throne, the Platinum Jubilee. I find it a little, if there's one somber part about this, I'm a little sad that Prince Philip was not alive to see this, because they were together... Uh, tied to the hip, basically, for, for decades. Yeah, no. yeah and, and, and especially at Tribune of Color. Um, you know, after um, her a Mountie horse, Burmese, which was a gift from the Mounties, um, retired, um, she switched from being on horseback to going in a carriage. And you'd, all, you'd see her and Philip in the carriage together. Um, I was there one year. I was there in 2016, and it was actually the last time Philip took part. And it was extraordinary because they... They knew everything. And, and this is the one event that she loves because these are her troops. This is the household division. Um, she knows them. They know her. And she has an eagle eye. And so she would be, and you could see her on the balcony today talking with her cousin, the Duke of Kent, who is the colonel of the Scots Guards, and talking. You could see them pointing at stuff. And they were clearly, you know, is this right? Is that wrong? That sort of thing. Um, but, yeah, it's a bit sad that Philip's not here for mm-hmm. this. Um, but look, I mean, when you saw her on the balcony, I mean, she was clearly, she was beaming from ear to ear, um, talking, chatting away with uh, Charles, who took the salute in her, in her name. Um, and clearly the torch has been passed. Yeah, and it's great to see that she gets to celebrate with uh, family uh, from grandchildren to great-grandchildren. And it's a uh, wonderful occasion, not only in England, but in all of the Commonwealth. Patricia, always appreciate your time. Thanks for joining us today. My pleasure. Patricia Treble, founder of Right Royalty and a royal contributor to McLean's. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Tomorrow is a big day because tomorrow is National Donut Day. Need I say more? Well, the Salvation Army will mark the day in style by providing these tasty treats to essential service providers and frontline workers across this province. And here to talk about it is Glenn Van Gullick. He's the Divisional Director of Public Relations in Ontario for the Salvation Army. Glenn, welcome back to the show. How are you? I'm great. Great to be here with you. Uh, This is a tradition that dates back several decades, doesn't it? It is, yeah. Actually, the Salvation Army began National Donut Day 
uh, back in 1938 in Chicago, um, brought it to Canada shortly after, but it's a time when we can celebrate uh, the work that the Salvation Army did on the front lines of the First World War. We actually sent over um, donut lassies back in the day, they were called, but Salvation Army uh, team members went over uh, to France, actually, to support the soldiers, the troops that were on our front lines, and uh, and brought actually baked donuts. You know, they were helping with writing supplies, and they had some clothes mending services. But this was a way to boost the spirits of our front line back in the day. And now we celebrate this every year to do the very same thing and and encourage our team members on the front lines, uh, essential workers, those that are supporting those in community and encourage them uh, with this great annual event. I, I think I read back in those wartime days that these donut lassies would, would sell the donuts as well to raise money for the troops. You're right. Back in Chicago, that's how they actually began this, and it was a way to support the troops uh, on the ground, recognizing the work that we had done on the, uh, on the front line of the First World War. But it was a fundraiser at that time. Now we've actually translated that into a, a time of celebration, a great day to, to grab a donut, and uh, and enjoy all of the all of the the benefits of community and supporting those that are on our front lines now. And so, you know, the Salvation Army. We have many essential workers that are part of our teams, uh, whether that's in emergency shelter, our front lines, uh, providing supports through our community family services, um, you know, adult day programs, child care centers, all of those uh, on our teams that are providing supports on the front lines. But also uh, those in community. We've been. The beneficiaries, you know, in community of the of the supports of our of our doctors, our nurses, our PSWs, all of those on our front lines, firefighters, police, paramedics, and so we want to take this as an opportunity to drive around and uh, provide them with a little bit of a, a, a you know a boost in the day bring them a donut, and uh, and take that opportunity to say thank you for their service as well. Yeah, Glenn, you really hit the nail on the head. You know, today's frontline heroes may not be in the trenches in Europe, but, you know, they're certainly playing a big part in a very different kind of battlefield, that being the pandemic. And what better way to put a smile on their face to give them maybe a bit of a rest than to say, here, have a donut and uh, and relax and, you know, enjoy this part of the day? Yeah, you're right. You know, it is it is a donut. It is it is a way of uh, boosting those spirits, right? Encouraging them, but it is also an opportunity to connect. Mm-hmm. And the Salvation Army has been doing that for over 150 years, uh, connecting with people in relationship. And, and as you pointed out, over these last couple of years, that has been more difficult. And so this year, able to get out there, uh, bring people, you know, this uh, this sweet treat, a donut that's very familiar, and uh, and again, express to them our thanks, our deepest gratitude for what they do every day supporting community, supporting the Salvation Army, uh, but supporting our neighbors and friends and colleagues, uh, but also uh, to, to encourage them as they continue to do that in, uh, in such tremendous ways. You're right, heroes on our front lines every day. We've seen it, we've experienced it here in Ontario, experiencing it through the most recent storm that's come through, many communities feeling the impacts of that. A great opportunity for the Salvation Army to go out and say thank you. And, uh, and and encourage our frontline workers. Our listeners can get involved in National Donut Day tomorrow by using the hashtag on social media, National Donut Day, that's D-O-N-U-T, Donut Day, or hashtag Donut Day 2022. Uh, the Salvation Army as well, um, also on the front lines, as you know, Glenn, you're, you're part of this work, helping the most vulnerable people in our community. How is that battle going? You know, that, that is a, a constant struggle for some, and that's why the Salvation Army continues to provide those supports and those services. You know, tomorrow we'll be celebrating National Donut Day, uh, but we also recognize that that's an ongoing um, effort from our front lines. You know, individuals that are living on the street rough, um, those that are finding themselves struggling with addiction, those that are, are looking for supports daily and, and on the rise 
uh, because of the food prices or gas prices, needing those added supports that the Salvation Army provides. And so, you know, as, as much as uh, we celebrate our frontline workers uh, tomorrow, uh, encouraging them, we know that they are part of that daily routine, that, that monthly need for so many, and, uh, and we'll continue to be there every day as people come to us in need. Our doors are always open always ready to support those in need and uh, and make a difference in people's lives because ultimately, again, it is about relationship and helping people see a brighter future for tomorrow. We have one more minute with Glenn Vadengulik from the Salvation Army as we talk about National Donut Day coming at us tomorrow. Uh, as we mentioned, the Salvation Army has played a part in National Donut Day for years and years and years. What kind of reaction do you get from frontline workers when you're delivering donuts? Well, you know what? Anytime you show up with donuts, it's always a good day for people, right? They're, yes. they're, they're always excited to see you walk in, and, and they see the donuts. Uh, we individually wrap them uh, to make sure that uh, everybody is able to take one away easily. Uh, but we also include on that the recipe for the original donut. Oh, wow. That the donut lassies uh, in the First World War were, were making. They were using the rations from the troops. And that original recipe is actually available on our website, SalvationArmy.ca, the original Sally Ann donut recipe. And so that's actually on those uh, on those donuts that we hand out. We put that on the packaging so that people can, can uh, have a bit of a, a history of it, understand where it came from, but also maybe take it home. Last year we heard from so many young families saying, we got around the table after dinner and uh, and we're able to make some donuts with the kids and enjoy some some history but enjoy the enjoy the history of national donut day and all that the salvation army has done back then and is doing today so uh, yeah a great response from the front lines and from those in community that see us out there and really quick because we got to go on the history front it was it was it true that soldiers fried or cooked their donuts in their helmets Actually, the donut lassies. There, there is a there is history that's uh, speaking to the donut lassies taking those rations and using the helmets as a way to make those donuts wow. uh, originally in the front line. So, yeah, there is some history around that. I don't think anybody would recommend doing that these days. <laughs> uh, but just the same, we want to uh, acknowledge that history and celebrate a great opportunity for communities to come together uh, and encourage one another. So, thanks for this. Uh, thanks for this time today. Really appreciate it and getting the message out. If people want to learn more salvationarmy.ca. You got it. Thanks a lot, Glenn. Have a wonderful day. God bless you. That is Glenn Van Gulick, Divisional Director of Public Relations in Ontario for the Salvation Army as we celebrate National Donut Day tomorrow in the Sally Ann, using it to recognize frontline workers. This is the Good Morning Hamilton podcast on 900 CHML. The Good Morning Hamilton podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your favorite podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode and make sure you rate and review.